0: Well, good morning, good morning. You can have a seat. We are glad that you are with us this morning. We want to welcome you to the gathering of the church. Good morning, Ellie. It's good to see you this morning. You can let Noel do it. She's got it already, thanks. Um, should have got here earlier. That's the way it goes. <laughs> um, so we want to get, uh, welcome you to the gathering of the church. We say that because we truly believe that we are God's children because what Jesus has done for us and that's why we get to celebrate. That's why we're here to worship this morning. And so one of the things that we do once a month is we we have Celebration Sunday and so we're going to eat a meal together um, as a family to enjoy uh, just life together and to share God's goodness with one another. But we also take time uh, during this part of our, of our gathering um, to share and tell the stories of God. Not the stories of one another, but the stories of God. And so as you share, we want to think about um sharing in a worshipful way so that jesus actually gets the credit for what's going on in your life not just this cool thing happened to me and so as we think about that we want to open up some opportunity right now for you guys to share and celebrate and tell the goodness of of who god is in, in the good things in the bad things in the struggles and the in the joys as we think about him coming uh this time of year and so who would like to share this morning some evidence of God's grace and what He's doing in your life. Thanks, Noel. Derek. So, uh, Amen. I feel like in some ways like I don't even need to talk. God's already met us here this morning. Um, but it is good to be back up teaching again this morning. It has been a little bit of a different experience for me sitting in the chair for the past five weeks. Um, I was thinking the other day um, that's been the longest that I have stretch of time uh, of not teaching since we started this church. Um, and so it's been good to get others involved. and it is our desire to disciple others and to, and to teach them how to share God's word and allow them to work on, on that in this setting because we do have a bigger vision of what God has called us into for this city than just one church. We desire that we would see God's expression of His family established and shared um, all over and started all over the city over the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now so that God's kingdom would, reality would really come to L.A. and that L.A. would really be changed for God, and, and God would be seen as good and gracious that he is, and that he would be the gracious king of this city, and that he would be the famous one, not famous people in this city. And so let's pray to that end, and let's continue to work and strive to that end, um, and that's, that's what we're about. We're about sharing Jesus with others so that he would get more glory. And so I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into what think God has for us today. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that we get to worship you this morning. We thank you that uh, you did come um, in that little stable in a little humble beginnings in Bethlehem and that you came so that you might redeem us and that you might call us into your family and that you might once again Give us an identity where we could image you to the world the way you ultimately designed us to live. And so, Father, we thank you for that good and gracious gift of Jesus and pray that you would, you would teach us this morning, pray that your spirit would continue to work on our hearts and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we've been uh, going through the Minor Prophets, really the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And looking at God's message to His people, really leading into the 400 years of silence before He speaks again and really makes good on His promise to send the Messiah, to send Jesus, which is really what we're celebrating this time of year. And so today we come to the book of Zechariah, and we're going to be looking at Zechariah for actually two weeks. This is the only book we're going to look at for two weeks, and I get to do it, which is good. Um... It's the largest of the, of the, of the minor prophets. Um, but Zechariah is probably one of the most difficult books in the Old Testament. Uh, to understand, it has a lot of imagery. It has a lot of visions like the book of Revelation. And it's intermixed with the narrative of the nation of Israel and some, maybe about 42,000 Jews who have returned from exile to rebuild the temple. And so that's kind of set in that setting. And and Joshua talked about that last week uh, when he talked about Haggai. So Haggai and Zechariah were actually contemporaries. Both were encouraging the people, where Haggai spends his time encouraging people to serve God and to to rebuild the temple and the promise that that God would make it glorious, Zechariah encourages them uh, to continue um, in, in doing those things, but in the form of messianic prophecies and how the kingdom of God Will prevail despite the brokenness around them, and so the role of the prophet of Zechariah was really to help people to imagine or envision um, a different future than what they could see or even imagine in that moment. And he's he's not there trying to raise some false hope for them because times were hard. Rather, he's he's refocusing people back uh, on God and His promises. And he foretells of a, of a new covenant that God would make with his people, and he, he continues to point people to the coming Messiah, an eternal king who's going to fulfill all of this covenant, who's going to save them, and who's going to rule forever. And so God gives Zechariah um, visions of what Jerusalem and its people would be like when the Messiah comes. And so what, what I want to do over the next two weeks as we look at this book and I think as we think through the Advent season um, is to look at how some of those Messianic prophecies actually come to fruition in the person of Jesus. Now they all do that in the person of Jesus, but we don't have time to cover all of them. Um, but if, you, um, if you've been following along in our reading plan, um, if you haven't, they're on the back, you can jump in. Um, uh, but you'll, you'll start reading uh, Zechariah today. Or maybe you've already started that this morning. Uh, a, good to, a good way to read that is, is actually uh, mark every verse down where God um, says He's going to do something for Jerusalem. You can just circle them or underline them. You'll find that there's over 50 of them, um, uh, of, of things that God says He's going to do for Jerusalem in this book. Um, and as you look at those, then go back and look at those with, with the lens of who Jesus is and what He's done. And so you can go through and read it and circle it and then go back and, and try to read it in light of that. You see, although these, these promises or these prophecies were made to Israel and they will be accomplished in the Jewish nation, they're not exclusively for Israel. They're actually inclusive of both Jews and Gentiles, you and me, because of Jesus. Now, Galatians 3.29 tells us that and it says this, it says, And if you are, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Ephesians two nineteen and three six says the same thing. It says this so, so then you, so Gentiles, are no longer strangers or sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And three sixteen says, Gentiles are fellow heirs together with Israel, members of the same bodies and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so, rather than these promises that we see in Zechariah being exclusively for Israel or just exclusively for the church, they're actually inclusive of both. So, you and I don't have to just read this book as, like, oh, this is just some historical information that, that I have to try to sift through, or this is just something for the future. Rather, we get to read it with the lens of, of understanding that these were actually literal promises that did and will happen. And that we, the church, get to be included in them through the work of Jesus and how he fulfills that in stages. Since the reality of the promise Messiah actually comes in stages himself. First at Christmas and then at the second coming. When many of these prophecies actually and promises actually come into full consummation. And so as we read and study this together, um, I want us to look through the lens of, of who Jesus is and, and what he's accomplished and what he's returning to bring into a literal reality. And so that's really good news. It's actually greater than, than, what, than what Israel's expectations were for these things. And it's greater than what our expectations are for these things too. And so rather than being intimidated by, by this difficult read, uh, allow the prophet of Zechariah to help you imagine or envision a, a different future where Jesus will return and, and, and allow that to encourage you to continue in the work that he's called you into today. And so the things that he's called us to, that we would actually live in light of a new identity and the new promises that he's done in our lives because of Jesus. And so obviously we don't have time to cover all 50 or more of these promises. And so I want to do today is actually discuss just one of them. Um, Because the reality is I think this is actually, this one is actually the linchpin on which all the other promises hang. And it's it's why I'd say Jesus came that first Christmas. And we actually find it in chapter 13. So if you want to um, open to chapter 13, I want to read verses 1 and 2. And then we'll kind of bounce a little bit from there. But I think this is the central one. And then we'll talk about another one next week as well. Um, But Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And on that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanliness. I want to say that this one is the linchpin because it's the promise that the Messiah will do something that no one has been able to do actually, cleanse people from sin from uncleanliness and remove idolatry completely from God's people. You see, the major problem all throughout history for all humans and for God's chosen people of Israel, if you look back, even, even when they were obeying God, there was still sin, there was still idolatry, there was still idolatry worship within the land and in with the, within the hearts of people. And so this problem of, of, of being unclean is continually over and over and over again. In fact, it's, it's the reason why the, the majority of the nation of Israel is still actually living in exile when this book was written. There's a few that have returned, but they're, they're still under the rule of another king. And the reason why they did that is because they worshipped other idols things other than God. And so God brings punishment into their lives so that they would see Him as a greater God to worship. Not just for punishment's sake, but so that they would turn and see who they were worshiping and seeing how that was unable to actually uphold what they needed. And so the primary reason why there was a need for a Messiah and Zechariah comes and promises people that in the future, there's in the future time, there will be a fountain would be opened that would take away their sin and their guilt. That's what he says in verse 1. Now, as to a Jewish reader, um, the hearer of those words, especially to this faithful few, this 42,000 who returned to, to rebuild the temple, um, in their minds, they would have immediately run to the sacrificial system that was set up for cleansing and for forgiveness of sin and uncleanliness. For years upon years upon years, there was a fountain of blood that flowed down the temple grounds. Animal after animal after animal was cut open and blood spewed out like a fountain and ran down over the altar and onto the ground and down onto the floor and probably out the doors of the temple. And over and over and over again, all day long, there would be this blood spewing like a fountain, making a way for people's sins to be forgiven. But the problem is that this forgiveness and this clean slate did not last. They had to go back the next day and sacrifice again and again and again and every year over and over and over again. See, the problem was it wasn't just a temporary wasn't just a temporary forgiveness, it was a problem, but it was also a constant reminder to them that they were unclean, that they were in need of true forgiveness. Hebrews 10 tells us this. Actually, we're going to cover Hebrews after we get out of this next, next year, so that's just a little side note. But Hebrews 10 tells us this thing, says this in verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been clean, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." And so Zechariah comes here and he, he comes along and he says, there's a fountain that's coming that's going to cleanse completely. But not just cleanse completely, but remove the remembrance of sin and idolatry from you. You ever think about that? That the sin of your life has actually been removed and the remembrance of it is actually gone? God has forgotten it. He's placed it as far from him as possible. We bring it back up to ourselves oftentimes, though, don't we? Zacharias tell them here that the sacrificial system is inadequate to do what they needed it to do. And if anyone is going to be saved from sin, a new fountain must be opened. Now, I think that can sound like good news to them, but I think it, in some ways it can also sound discouraging to them, especially to this faithful few that were coming to rebuild the temple and the sacrificial system. It can be discouraging to them to see really the, the futility of, of what they're actually doing. It's a reminder to them that the things that they're actually rebuilding are actually insufficient unless there's a promise of a new fountain. So what Zachariah is doing here is he re- he's revealing that forgiveness and sin is actually connected to the Messiah. Now, how do we know that? Um, and I know we just started in chapter thirteen, but it's not actually the first thing said in the book. Um, there's quite a few chapters before that—twelve of them, actually, um, if you can do math right. Um, but actually, what he's been doing—he's actually been—he's been building to this point, uh, and he's here connecting the Messiah. To the promise of the fountain. Let me show you that if you want to go back to chapter three, uh, in verses eight and nine, we'll see some, some messianic language that's used here. Um, that's actually very similar messianic language that we see in Jeremiah and actually in Isaiah. And uh, Zechariah three, eight and nine says this Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men, for they are the men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon the stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave, be engraving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquities of the land in one day, in one day. And we don't have time to read Isaiah and Jeremiah, but, but if you go back to Isaiah 11 and it talks about the Messiah in verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch of its roots shall bear fruit. And then it goes on and talks about how the Holy Spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him and that how he will be righteous and how he will, and all that he's going to do. And if you go back and have some time to read that later today, um, there are so many connections that Zechariah is making here. But the readers of Zechariah's prophecy would have automatically made those connections back to the Messiah. As soon as he said, branch, the little light bulb in their head would be like, oh, branch, that's the Messiah, right? And so when in verse says, the verse 9, it says, I will remove the guilt from this land in a single day. He's connecting the forgiveness of sins to the single day of the coming branch, the Messiah, and the book then goes on from there and builds this 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 idea, this promised Messiah that leads to the fountain to come, in verse in chapter thirteen, and in chapter twelve, well, we see that the spirit of the God spirit of God is going to be the one that actually convicts people's hearts, so that they'll actually see a need for the Messiah. In Zechariah twelve ten and eleven, it says this. This is what's going to happen. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication so that when they look on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. You're starting to see or hear some of those things about the Messiah. See, the reality is that no one, not then or not now, mourns or is sorrowful for their sin unless God acts. Unless the promise of the Holy Spirit actually moves in someone's heart. It's why we see in chapter 12 the promise of the Holy Spirit here actually filling the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that there will actually be godly sorrow in their hearts and in their lives. What's also evident in this prophecy is Zechariah is telling us that the inhabitants of of Jerusalem are actually going to pierce and kill someone tremendously important. And that God is going to convict the house of David and the dwellers of Jerusalem about their sin. And finally, there's going to be sorrow for their sins and they're going to cry out to God's um, God's supplication for mercy. You see, the only reason why someone mourns as, as for an only child or weeps bitterly, bitterly for a firstborn is because they've actually died. And so what Zachariah is saying here is that he must meant that the people will, will someday pierce and kill someone of great importance. And they will be deeply, de- um, um, deeply grieved and sorry for their sins. And when that happens, actually... That's when the fountain of God's forgiveness flows freely over the guilt of all of Jerusalem. And when we say Jerusalem, we're talking not just the city itself, but the people of Jerusalem, the people of God. Now what Zechariah didn't know, um, but what we know now, because we know the rest of the story, and we know how these promises are fulfilled is that the Messiah, the fountain, the firstborn, would actually be born in a humble stable that first Christmas morning. The truth is that all the promises made to Israel in the book of Zechariah, and in fact of the whole Bible, depend on the opening of the fountain of Christ's blood. See, the good news is that there was a man, a Messiah, who came who was the firstborn Son of God who sprouted up from the line of Jesse, who lived a perfect life righteously, whose side was pierced and his blood flowed like a fountain, who was killed by his own people in Jerusalem, who was put behind a stone on Passover night, and who God laid on him the sins of the world, And accepted his blood as the one and ultimate sacrifice, one time, one day, done. So that no more sacrifices needed to be made ever again. But the good news is that he didn't stay behind the stone. But he rolled the stone back and rose from the dead and actually walked out of the grave. And when he walked out of the grave, he declared, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and him, and he he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He declares, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture said, out of his heart flows a river of living water, a brand new fountain. He says, I am the fountain. That's what he declares. And on that first Pentecost day when Peter gets up in the power of the Holy Spirit and shares the truth about this man that Jesus was the Messiah that Zechariah was talking about and that all who looked on him, who pierced on him and were filled with sorrow and cried out for God to mercy that they get to drink from the waters of forgiveness from the new fountain. The fountain of Jesus who promises to remove our sin for as far as from the east is from the west where it's no longer remembered ever again. Is that good news? Come on, I'm already tired. (laughs) The promises and prophecies of Zechariah have come true. It's why Christmas is so beautiful. The long await is over. The advent time of anticipation is over. The promised one has come. The life and death and rebirth of Christ perfectly fits into the messianic prophecies of Zechariah. It is such good news. It's why Zechariah says in chapter 11, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. Not inhibited, inhabited. <laughs> yeah. So I can't even read now. <laughs> For there shall be no more curse. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. In chapter 2 and verse 5 it says this, for I will be her a wall of fire about, around about, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within her. We don't have time to do this this morning, but I want to encourage you to go back. You've kind of got a lot of reading today. Uh, to go back and read Revelations chapter 21 and chapter 22 alongside of Zechariah. And you will see the same images in this book of Revelation on what the new kingdom and new Jerusalem of will look like when Jesus actually returns and sets it up. There's a river flowing from the throne and fountain of Jesus. It will be a city where God will wipe away every tear and will dwell in the midst of his people. There is so much, so much more. We don't have time. But I challenge you to go back and read it together and read it. But the, the message of Zachariah is a word of hope to us. If we understand what Christ has done for us in opening up, the fountain of His blood. Then we will know that we're actually included in the promises of Zechariah. Zechariah two, ten. It says this: Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. As I hear that, I can't help but think of Hebrews twelve twenty-two, where it says, "You have come to the Mount Zion, to the city of the living God." in the heavenly Jerusalem. Ephesians 2 tells us in Christ that we are no longer alienated, but we are part of the commonwealth of Israel and and no longer strangers to the covenant of His promise. What good news is that, that we get to be included in what Zechariah was talking about here because the fountain of Jesus has been opened. What great hope that is to you and to me this time of year and also all year long that the fountain of forgiveness has been opened for you. And if it's for you to cleanse you through yourself in that faith or that fountain, and all the promises of God's people are for you. You see, the hope and joy and glory of Zechariah that he shares with his people is the hope and joy and glory of ours. Because as the children of Israel and citizens of the New Jerusalem, we get to be included in those promises. How amazing is that? That we get to now live in that way where our sins are no longer remembered, where God looks at us and He doesn't see our sins, but He actually sees the righteousness of Jesus. And when our sins are buried in the grave and left still behind the stone. That's the amazing joy and hope that we get to share this Advent season. That's what we get to remember as we celebrate Christmas as we share the good news with people around us that are running after other things and worshiping other things other than the true one where there's actually hope for actually change in life. That's why we say this often. We have the most to celebrate of anyone on this entire planet because a fountain has been opened that we can freely go to and receive forgiveness and grace and be cleansed once and for all. We no longer have to live in remembrance of our brokenness. We get to live in remembrance of how God sees us, that our sins are gone and buried forever. Our Father, we thank you that the righteousness of Jesus is ours. Father, we thank you that your side was pierced and that Jesus' side was pierced and his blood poured out so that we could have a fountain opened for forgiveness for us. Father, I pray that that as we think about those things and as we think about the future where we get to spend eternity with You, um, walking in Your goodness and Your grace, with You in the middle of the city. Father, we pray as we we think about those things that we would work toward that end now, that You would be the middle of the city, that Your fountain would be poured out on L.A., that many people this season and even today would understand their need of your grace and your truth and that they would walk through the waters of that fountain and have a new life afresh. Father, we thank you for the good news and hope of that that we get to celebrate at Christmas. Father, pray that we would be reminded of that daily and that we would live out of that reality and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.